This is the Identity Shockwave podcast, where we explore the journey of self-discovery and the many layers of who we are as we ride this wave called life. Four questions, real people, endless exploration. I'm your host, Lori Vaitzig. Hey, you made it. Welcome to the Identity Shockwave podcast, where we explore all things identity and self-discovery. My name is Lori, and I'm so stoked that you are here. And it's a new year. New beginnings, maybe some endings. But for me, I have a lot of new motivation. I'm looking forward to establishing new habits, like spending less time on social media and more time in nature. I live in Los Angeles, for crying out loud. Why am I not at the beach more? But you know what? I'm also not going to beat myself up over these things. The things I think I should be doing. I get to do them. I'm grateful to have these experiences. And you know what? I'm deserving of them. Which leads me to today's episode and the theme I want to carry through into this new year. Confidence. The confidence knowing that you deserve all the things you aspire for and that they are available to you. You just got to know it and believe it. It's your truth. And our guest today is such a great example of that. But before we get into that, I have a little favor to ask. Another goal of mine this year is to grow this podcast and to reach new audiences. But I can't do that without your help. So please be sure to like, subscribe, comment on social media, leave me a review, give me five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That really goes a long way. And I so appreciate your support. But back to today's episode, which, by the way, now I'm realizing that I forgot to ask our guests the same question that I always ask at the beginning and the end. I forgot to ask them at the end. So my apologies, but just wanted to clear that up. Anyways, today we talked to Jeremy Pion Berlin. He's a filmmaker, and that is his truth. He's always known it. And his confidence is inspiring. He gives a different take on everything we've heard thus far on this podcast. And while a big motivator for doing this podcast was to show how we all struggle and we all relate to feeling like we don't belong or aren't worthy, we need people to inspire us with their confidence and convictions. And Jeremy is a great example of this. I hope you feel as invigorated about your own goals and dreams as I did after this conversation. But I'll let you decide. Cheers to this new year. Let's talk to Jeremy. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. And I'm so excited to talk to you today and hear your unique take on identity. Thanks for having me, Lauren. Yeah, for sure. And so it's funny because we've traveled together. We've celebrated together. Mm. We've partied together. <laughs> <laughs> I, still, I still feel like I don't know you super well. So I'm just really excited to learn more about you today. Yeah, I, I agree. It's like we know each other, but we don't know each other, kind of. <laughs> yeah. And every time I see you, you're always so sweet. You always give us a big hug and a big warm welcome. So I know today that all of that enthusiasm and love you have, I'm sure, will just radiate throughout the podcast. <laughs> well, thank you. So I like to start this off by asking, you know, how do you introduce yourself? Do you have an elevator pitch? You know, my name you know, I have a unique name. My name is Jeremy Pion Berlin. Uh, my dad is Pion. My mom is Berlin. 
And uh, they decided to hyphenate that name back in 1980 before it was kind of hip and cool. Mm -hmm. But growing up as a kid, I never really liked my name a lot because it's spelled P-I-O-N. And so people always thought it was like French. Mm. So it'd be Jeremy Pidon Berlin. Uh. And then and then to some Jewish, that joke is even more, a little stronger. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, I'm a filmmaker and a uh, person and uh, I like to travel and, and I like people. And I like to talk to people and read books and skateboard and hang out with my friends and family. I think you liking people is definitely evident, and uh, especially when it comes to your work. So you're, am I right by saying you're like a documentary filmmaker? Yeah, I mean, I've done narrative as well, but that's not really <clears throat> my main focus currently right now because it's uh, much harder to do narrative films. You need a lot more money and a lot more people, a lot more time. But yeah, currently I've been kind of working in uh, documentary television and uh, my feature doc, Failure to Protect, has just came out on Amazon. So I'm excited about that. But <clears throat> I also made a narrative short film earlier this year, which was really fun and uh, hoping to finish that uh, shortly. So that one was cool. That was good to get back in that. And I do write as well uh, with my mutual friend, Adam Lincoln Helt. So I guess unscripted pays the bills, is to put it uh, frankly, and then the scripted work is still pushing on the sides, but that doesn't pay the bills. <laughs> yeah, the industry is a, a tricky one to actually create what you want to create, but also sustain your life. So I understand that. Yeah, <clears throat> I want to sure. I want to talk a little bit more about your most recent work that you put out, Failure to Protect. Super, super powerful. And I think the themes of identity really do speak a lot with uh, the themes of the film itself. Can you talk a little bit more about it? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to think about the film throughout the lens of like identity, but I'll just explain what it is for people who don't know. It's essentially five parents, but three families who have all lost their kids to uh, CPS and the kids have been taken and put in foster care. It's really like a journey of like, what does it take? from a parent's perspective to get your kids back after they've been taken away from you? And how do you sort of prove that you're not this monster that the system is painting you out to be? And along the journey, you know, you go, you go through this emotional journey with these parents and these families, but it was also important for me to provide context to these problems and not just have it just kind of so emotional. So it's kind of a balanced view of like, you get the emotional part with the family, then you learn from judges or social workers or civil rights advocates about like the laws and why why the things are the way they are. So I really wanted to juxtapose sort of the bigger picture things alongside the emotional kind of personal storylines of it. But I guess in terms of like identity for the film, I, I just feel like there's this real big narrative in America around parenting. And it's 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 always sort of existed of this judgment we all have of other parents, of how you were parented compared to how I was parented. And we kind of all think our way is the right way, right? I mean, that's sure. that's kind of how we all are believed to think. And so I kind of wanted to sort of take down that narrative a little bit and humanize these people a bit. And I just felt like they didn't really have a voice in this system, the parents especially. And so, yeah, that's why I wanted to tell it from their perspective. Yeah. And I think you did actually really strike a good balance because uh, as much as you do feel for these parents, 
once you learn about honestly like the legality of everything is a little bit screwed up very screwed mm-hmm. up rather but some of the parents at points in the story like really frustrate you there's some things yeah. some of the decisions that they've made I wouldn't have made myself. I don't think other parents, I'm not a parent, but like, I don't think other people would have made. So like you get frustrated, like, why did you do that? And then also, but (laughs) yeah. And it's the idea of going in front of a judge and proving yourself, proving your identity as a parent, that you're a good parent and that you can take care of your kids in this way. And it's the situations in the film are just really unfortunate and unfair. So I feel like everyone that watches it, whether you're a parent or not, can just have a broader view of our legal system and how fragile these things can be. Yeah, I mean, I just I feel like a lot of people, unless you've had like contact with it per se, you really don't know anything about it. It was it's sort of like very analogous to the prison industrial complex, Mm -hmm. which now is kind of more mainstream and more Americans would say that they vaguely understand that we put too many people in prison for too low of crimes and we have a problem and that's sort of this system but just people don't know about it because if you enter foster care your odds of going to prison are very high Mm -hmm. and then you get out of prison and you have a baby and then that baby gets taken away from you and then that baby goes to prison and then the cycle continues unfortunately yeah i think they're they're kind of very all connected I wanted to just like give people the information without sort of telling you what to think about the information, like try to let people come to their own conclusions was my goal. Yeah. And how did you come upon this story, these stories and the idea for this project? Yeah. So my mom runs like a nonprofit called Parents Anonymous, and it essentially helps parents and families who get wrapped up in the child welfare system to navigate it. Because like I said, like if you never dealt with it before, it's kind of like getting hit by a truck. Pretty much you have just no idea what you're in for. So they sort of they provide groups and parents who have been through the system give other parents advice and those kind of groups could be court ordered. So that's how I initially got interested in it. And then sort of dove deeper and deeper and met more and more people. And then I got sucked in a little bit. Yeah. I bet your mom has seen it all, huh? <laughs> yeah, she has. Oh, she wow. Has. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I feel like you have to be a super compassionate person to be in those types of spaces. So I'm sure she's a, a wonderful woman. Um, <laughs> so yes. uh, tell me a little bit more about how you got into filmmaking. No, I know you. I, I know that you've are very well traveled and you've worked on a ton of stuff, but like, was there ever something that like clicked in you? Was it something from when you were younger? Like this, this is it. This is what I need to be doing. The story I have is, is maybe more unique. I had a babysitter in first grade and his name was David Goldman. And uh, I really looked up to David uh, and he would come over and would babysit me. And my dad had a whole old uh, Hyatt camera when he put the little tape in and we would make little movies together and we'd make little stop action movies and he'd pop out of the fridge and or I had I had a little club in my backyard. I called it the Rad Club. <laughs> and we would pull pranks on my friends who would come over and we would just film stuff. And that was really cool. But I, I just always looked up to David and then he became a skateboarder. So then I had to become a skateboarder because <laughs> I looked up to him and he was like the best skateboarder in town. And then so I started making skateboard videos. And then when I was 16, actually, I kind of decided I wanted to like try to make a movie movie. I went to a filmmaking camp at 16. Nice. 
it was supposed to be like in LA because I'm from SoCal, but it was like canceled. And so there was one in New York and it was like the first time I ever like flew on a plane by myself and I like stayed with my grandparents. I made like two short films that weekend and I was just like, this is what I'm gonna do the rest of my life. This is it, you know? That's so cool. And uh, yeah, I kind of never had a normal job before. I did work in a smoothie shop for two weeks after high school, but I didn't get past the two week, <laughs> the two week trial period because I'm not much of a, uh, not a, smooth, a customer service. Not a smoothie I'm not guy. A customer service. <laughs> no, not a smoothie guy. He wanted me to say aloha to everyone that came in the store, and I thought that was crazy. Mm. And I I knew half the people in my hometown, so I wasn't saying aloha to the people I know, you yeah, know. Yeah, there's a little appropriation <laughs> going on there. Um, yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> talk about that. Do, uh, <laughs> uh, two things. One, does the Rad Club still exist, which you consider you and your buddies the Rad Club now? <laughs> well, the uh, building of the Rad Club has been taken down, unfortunately. Uh-huh. It does not exist physically, but maybe in spirit, I guess we could say it exists still. <laughs> But yeah, those friends, yeah, I don't really talk to at all. But actually that guy, David, who was the one who I looked up to, he got me like my first job in the film industry, actually, uh, like it, when I was, had to call it a break after sophomore year. And I was like an assistant editor for this company that was actually doing like trailers for Sony Picture Classic movies. Mm. And that was actually really cool. And I, and Francis Ward Coppola hadn't made a movie in like 10 years. And he had just made this movie called Youth Without Youth, uh, starring Tim Roth. It's like a weird indie, probably most people haven't heard of it, but it's a really cool film. And part of my job was just to like watch the behind the scenes footage of Francis Ford Coppola shot by his wife. And that was really informative and really cool. That's actually. wild. Yeah. As a college student, that's really cool. And I got to go on set on uh, David Mamet made a movie called Red Belt. It's about jujitsu. It's super cool. And I got to go on set and watch that a little bit. So that was like, he actually kind of gave me my first job in the film industry too. So that was kind of a cool circle there. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, it seems yeah. like, it seems like obviously from a very young age, you knew what you wanted to do, but then throughout college, you had all these experiences too that just kind of reinforce that in you and that like this is your path this is your destiny this is what you're going to do throughout this although it seems like again this is very much ingrained in you have you ever felt like a fraud or have you ever had imposter syndrome i i don't really think so to my knowledge (laughs) maybe deep down or something like that my mom very kind of uh strong kind of personality to say the least the uh, ceo a PhD type of woman, kind of like you deserve what you you work for type of mentality raised with and her, my grandpa, her father, very kind of go-getter type, right? A big time lawyer in DC. And so it's weird when I get to a position of power or like I get to the next stage, I, I, I always feel like, oh God, I should have been here a long time ago. And, and I'm, That might sound like cocky or egotistical, but that's just kind of how I feel. I can't help it. You know what I mean? Like, I just, so when it turns to filmmaking, like I'm always feeling, I I don't feel that. I don't feel that kind of imposter syndrome at all, but I guess maybe possibly in other phases of life, maybe that in a way, Sure. but I'm pretty comfortable in my own skin, I think. And probably that's how I was raised or, you know, it's probably 
a lot of things in, in collaboration, but I don't really give a fuck what people think about me, to say the least. I, I remember this girl, she didn't want to date me anymore because I told her that. I thought that was kind of funny. I was like, <laughs> oh, I guess you really don't want to. I, I guess we shouldn't date because if that's what you think, uh, if that's a problem for you, then I mean, it, it's kind of like a double edged sword. It's like, of course, I care what like my parents and my sister and my best friends think of me or like my boss, obviously. Sure. But like, Generally, I, I just know like you can't control the the way others behave or the the way others feel about you, you know. So why waste your time worrying about that kind of stuff? Because even if you put your best foot forward, it's like if they're not gonna like you, they're not gonna like you. So <laughs> yeah. I try not to worry about that too much. <laughs> That's a powerful mindset to have. And I, I constantly try to work on myself with that with not caring well not that not caring what other people think but knowing that you don't have the control to you know influence what they're going to think but also what i love about your answer is that i mean that's awesome like this is probably the first time that i've heard <laughs> that from somebody and it's super refreshing to hear because what i get from that is that you've had a lot of support going up into this and that you just you have this like innate knowing and confidence that like I'm supposed to be here. This is what I'm doing. This is what I was made to do. So to hear that, it's just like, it's really empowering, actually, for me. It's like, <laughs> I should be doing this. Why Why shouldn't I be in this room? Why shouldn't I be here? So I, I really love hearing that. I don't think it's egotistical at all. It's, it's you, you know yourself. I think you have a really good awareness of yourself. And that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I try to. I try to. I think, I think also I talk about it out loud. So I try to like, it's sort of like I'm inceptioning myself, like to be about what you talk about, you know, I think. Or yeah. if I'm going to do something, I always tell everyone I'm going to do it. And I don't tell everyone to be, because if I tell everybody, then I have to fucking do it, right? Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. now I've told you. It's a little bit of manifestation, I think, to a degree, I think, a little bit. Um, For sure. Yeah. You know. There's like sometimes you hear like, oh, don't tell everybody what you're going to do. Like hold your cards close to your chest. I'm not that type of person, though, either. I like to share mm -hmm. um, because I like to feel that support and know that like, yeah, this is the right thing I should be doing. I'm very much about validation. So I'm always <laughs> asking people and telling people. But also to your point, like speaking it into the universe, giving it life like that. I'm very much about that form of manifestation, too. So I'm glad that you pick up on that also. Yeah, yeah, I think it just kind of, it kind of gets me more excited. And yeah, I think it just kind of, if I if I talk about it, if I communicate with friends and family about it, then it's just more in my space of uh, mental space to, to make sure I do that thing or whatever it is that I'm like kind of running towards yeah. <laughs> at the given moment. You know? Yeah, for sure. It kind of like lights the fire under your ass, like make sure you get to that point. Well, I think we kind of like touched on this a little bit with as far as I would say your confidence and what you do. Uh, but what parts of your identity make you most proud and which have you struggled with the most? Yeah. So <clears throat> I guess I am proud of like my passionate sort of nature and my I don't know how to say it but I just really like people and I really can uh sit with people and like just like to connect with them I just really like that and I don't know if that's that's probably a combination of things of just having like the curiosity in life sort of I think you know I love talking to the old man at the bar at 2 a.m about <laughs> like philosophy or some shit yeah. or like or whoever you know it's just kind of like so I think that that kind of go getter stuff and the 
internal kind of, I have a pretty like baseline barometer that I kind of roll with. I'm not very like super high or super low. You know what I mean? I'm kind of like pretty even keel, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously I get excited or I get sad like anybody else, but I would say I'm proud of that, that I can stay sort of calm in most situations. And I think uh, I show the people that I love, love. So I think they know that. So I think that's good. Yeah. But <clears throat> I guess parts of me that I'm not so proud of, sometimes I, I don't think before I speak. I'm sure plenty of people do that. Uh, I mean, I think when I was younger filmmaker, I definitely thought I knew so much more than I did. Right. And I had definitely an ego and definitely too much, um, too much of that instead of putting in the work and the listening. And so it's been a process trying to humble myself over the last 10, 15 years. I'm just trying to stay grounded, I think, and stay in the, in the present instead of looking too far ahead or looking in the past of what you could have done, or, oh, I should have done this, or I should have done that, or I should be doing this. And it's like, Someone told me, like, it is true. There's no shoulds in life. It's just, there's just, should isn't even a thing. It's just either you are that or you're not that, right? There's just, mm-hmm. that doesn't exist. So I think just kind of trying to take down my ego a little bit slowly, <laughs> one, one thing at a time is something I still try to do. Um, it's difficult. I'm not going to lie. But yeah, I think those, and I think sometimes I can come off a little abrasive. To, towards people so I try to work on that a little bit but then part of me is also like fuck who cares I mean you know <laughs> exactly that's what that's why like all my friends either like like when I meet them either we're like friends like that like boom like Mike Mo, for example we met we were friends instantaneously right but then other people like like Adam or Mike we didn't like each other no way didn't like each other and then we eventually you know realized how we we like each other you know we're friends so I think um that kind of mentality can have like a more volatile effect but Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then again sometimes I like the volatile effect so it just depends but yeah I'd say those those would be the positives and negatives. Yeah, I relate to a lot of those, especially the abrasiveness of uh, being an Italian New Yorker. And I've, I've talked about this a lot, <laughs> but like coming out here to Southern California mm-hmm. was like such a culture shock for me. I'm like, why is everyone talking so slow? Why are you walking so slow? We got places to go. And like my personality was a lot for people to take on. So I've said a lot. California has definitely softened me, but I still got Mm -hmm. still got my hard ass part of me that I'm proud of. (laughs) I'm proud of because, you know, it's almost like like a shield. Like it's like a a layer Mm -hmm. of protection for me. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But it's a huge part of my personality, too. And I'm I'm not ashamed of it. Not anymore. It's something Mm -hmm. I had to I felt like I always had to explain, but not not people think I'm from New York often. I uh, get that vibe from you, too. Because, well, my dad's from New York, so I guess, ah. you know, and my parents are East Coasters. They're just transplants to the West Coast. Well, that makes sense. So, then. yeah. And I, I, yeah, I guess it's that, you know, 
Yeah. It's sort funny. Of n- not giving a fuck a little bit. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because everything you said about you, I, I can confirm and validate because the first time I met you <laughs> was in a Rosarito Beach. We went down with your group of friends. Oh, yeah. 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 I was uh, dating my now husband. We were like six months in, maybe. It was like our first big trip together. And uh-huh. uh, my first time in Mexico. And you just like you just so are unashamedly yourself and you're just like kind of walking around and just like you have this like big shitting grin on your face and like you really just had no filter so like me also being a person that like sometimes I have to watch what I say I kind of was just like I liked you, but I also was like, I don't, I don't, does this guy like me? Is he, is he scary? Like, I, I, I don't know. He's just like, kind of like saying whatever the fuck he wants. Like, I don't know if he can snap. Like, I don't know if he's going to get mad or like whatever it was. But as that weekend went on, I just realized that you're just, just a fun guy and like, you don't care. And that, and I think that's what a lot of people do love about you is that you just are very much authentically yourself and I think that's super important and I feel like also you had mentioned to me previously that your travels too kind of really shaped who you are and I I know a little bit about that story but maybe you can you can share that a little bit yeah that's funny I can't believe that's the first time we met on that Mexican trip (laughs) yeah Yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean I think it's funny since we're talking about like identity and stuff. Like as a kid, I hated to travel. I hated it. And my parents would always want to go places and and I was just like a little baby, baby about it. Because I wanted to stay home and skateboard with my friends (laughs) and fucking fuck off. I didn't want to like go on some vacation. I think it was like uh, the first real, I mean, I had been on some trips out of country with my family, but you know, it was like, I think when I was 20, I went to Australia for like a filmmaking thing through my school. Hmm. And that was a really great trip for me. And I kind of would like got the little bit of the travel bug there. And then in college, my junior year, I studied abroad for a semester in Edinburgh, Scotland. And then I really got the travel bug there. And just kind of like meeting different people and and seeing different ways of life was great. But really, it was when I graduated college, I moved to the Philippines, got an internship at a film studio out on an island called Cebu in the southern Philippines. And that was the really changed my life for sure. You know, if I hadn't gone on that trip, I don't even know who I would be right now, honestly, or where I would be. It's the truth. And it's for a lot of factors, but I think going somewhere so different, going to Europe is great and all, and I love Europe, but it's just, it's the Western world. It's not technically that different from here, but living kind of in Southeast Asia in a much poorer kind of country. And it was on a lot of levels. It was incredible. I think the people of the Philippines are just so uh, amazing and generous and welcoming. And I think when you see people who have so little and are yet so happy and so content it's it's really like inspiring and like i hadn't seen that before you just kind of see people here are just so like nothing's good enough Mm -hmm. everything and that's kind of just like oh god when you realize that you come it was more of a culture shock to come from the philippines back to america than the philippines to america i mean hands down that's where i met our mutual friend mike mo how i got introduced to you and that's how i met all my best friends really and it was just kind of like a type of person that goes there and works for this company has to be a type of person and can't really be too rigid 
uh, has to kind of be very flexible. Uh, we worked for a, a billionaire person who is not the most mentally stable and <laughs> not going to throw anybody under the bus. But obviously, I wouldn't have, thank God he built that studio because we all met there. But it kind of brought together this sort of ragtag sort of group of people from Europe and America and kind of all over. I went there in 2010. It was still feeling the effects of the 2008 crisis. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our like supervisors and mentors were actually pretty legitimate people in the film industry. So we were able to learn a lot. It was a good place to make mistakes. You know, I made plenty <laughs> of them out there. And, you know, the stakes were lower, right? Because it was just, we were just making stuff in the Philippines. And so, I mean, it was a good learning experience. And that was sort of where I got really, when I talked about getting humbled, there's a couple instances there where I was totally out of line. And those kind of things and kind of getting reprimanded were really kind of pivotal for me and like kind of growing up a bit more and like being more of an adult and learning how to be professional, like for real, for real, how to be professional. Cause I was like 22 when I went out there and I had no idea how yeah. to be a real professional. Yeah. And just, yeah. And then just the travels of going all around Southeast Asia and just experiencing those different places and cultures was just uh, really great. And um, the whole thing uh, shaped me. And it was just really cool because eventually, slowly, one by one, everyone from the Philippines moved to LA because we're all filmmakers. And now we have this, the Rad Club here. That's, you know, our <laughs> Rad Club. <laughs> And uh, we all hang out still all the time, uh, 12 years later. So, yeah, I love seeing a, a really bonded friend group like that. That's just like been together for years and hasn't really grown apart. That's like really heartwarming to me. How long were you in the Philippines for? I was there for a year and a half. That's a long um, time. Yeah. You get really sick. It's interesting because I was mentioning like the culture shock. So I had like after the first six months, I came back for a little bit to visit family before I left. And. I still remember the first night I came, it was like six months I'd been gone out of America and I'm back in my hometown. I'm back at my local bar, the press back with like my childhood best friends. And we're talking to this guy, something was off with him. I couldn't tell why I didn't like this guy. It just, he was, something was off with this guy and he's talking and he's talking about some bullshit. I don't even know. What, and eventually he calls Obama the N word. <sighs> and at the end of this conversation, he calls him the N word. And I was just like floored, right? I'm like, what the fuck? And literally like the culture shock hit me then. Like it was like, I couldn't even talk to anybody else anymore. I'm like, why am I here? Why did I come back to this country? Like, what am I, I need to leave now. Like, mm -hmm. this is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, like, it was just like this kind of like outer body experience. I remember this other, this friend of mine, she's like, are you okay? Cause she just looked at me from across the bar. She's like, are you okay? And I'm like, Oh, I'm not. Yeah. I'm upset. <laughs> yeah. I mean, two things regarding that. Uh, we just went to Italy this past spring for our honeymoon, and I was overhearing some tourists talking to some other Americans and them talking about how they're afraid to come here. And, you know, we live here. And to f hear that people are afraid to come here because of all the gun violence and everything that we have here was just like mm -hmm. super wild to me. But then also my only experience of Southeast Asia is going to Bali for Mike's wedding. That was, yeah, the, yeah that was the first time I've ever really been out of the country other than Mexico. So mm -hmm. for me, that was a complete like, oh, wow. Like 
and I wouldn't say culture shock. It was just like, oh my God, like an immersive cultural experience because I never knew <laughs> that people could live this way. Yeah. And we had this driver, his name's Kadek. We're still friends on Facebook and I tell everybody to go to him. He's a wonderful man. <laughs> and I was asking him about his life and how you're saying earlier, how they can live so simply, but just have so much joy and be so happy. And at one point we had stayed in this hotel in Chenggu and it was a brand new hotel and the shower was overflowing and like some other shit happened and I got into the his car and started complaining and I was like what why am I complaining to this guy about this like this is such first world problems because mm-hmm. I was asking him how he sleeps he's like oh well the whole family kind of just like sleeps on the floor in one room together and I was like and yeah. I was like, what do you eat for, for you know, your meals? She's like, oh, my wife will make one thing in the morning. And we'll kind of just eat that throughout the day. And to, and but he just had so much love in his heart. and was so happy to, to be there. And another story I heard about him recently, a, a friend of mine who I met him through recommended mm-hmm. him to her friend. And this guy, something happened where he had to go to the hospital and Kadek stayed with him at the hospital overnight and translated to the doctors to help him. Like the the level of compassion and and love for people that people of Southeast Southeast Asia have. I can't speak for all of them, but that's the general feeling I got. And yeah, to your experience coming back here and just hearing hate just so easily spewed like that, who would want to be here and experience that? It's terrible. Yeah, there's a lot of, I guess, you know, the zeitgeist right now in America is really hard for me. It's really just hard to connect with the general zeitgeist going around. And it's about anything, literally about any pick a fucking topic. I mean, I just, you know, it's like, I don't even agree with the discussion around the topic. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I always say when I'm traveling, if the white people go left, I go right. You know what I mean? It's, <laughs> it's simple. It's simple. Oh, the Americans like that place go the fucking other way. You know, like, it's just like the most basic I think I do, but I just always never go where they go. <laughs> That's so, oh my God, I love that. I want to adopt that yeah. myself. But I mean, it's true. It's true. You'll have more of an authentic experience if you don't go to the westernized place. So I, I think you pretty much answered this already, but I'm going to ask it again. Sure, um, sure. Was there ever a decision that you made that changed the trajectory of your life? Well, I, I think it's the, the, the one to go to the Philippines, really. That's what I um, Because it was funny, before I left, like I had an internship possibility at a, a Universal, and it was like the Philippines. The Philippines one was yes already. And I was waiting to hear back from the Universal one. And if I would have got this Universal one, which would have been so boring. Oh, my God. <laughs> it would have been devastating. I would have taken it, too, like an idiot because mm-hmm. I didn't know any better. That would have, you know... God, I, you know, be a sad person probably now, but, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that was probably the biggest one I would say, I guess maybe even that decision to just like know that I was going to be a filmmaker at a young age and just kind of commit to that, like from an early age, I I guess that was a pretty big one for me. Like once I had the kind of realization, this is what I'm going to do. I never considered anything else, never have, you know what I mean? So those two would probably be the biggest kind of decisions that sort of put me on the trajectory that I am. But I think it's also a lot of little decisions you do over the course of your life that really kind of make you the person you are. And sure. just like, it, I do think it is the little things, whether consciously or unconsciously, you're doing them that kind of set you on your path. But yeah, usually it's either something really positive or something really negative that yep. kind of 
kind of will shake me out of whatever haze I'm in at that time mm -hmm. and kind of keep me, move me in the direction I want to go. Yeah. Have any of your projects influenced, oh, I, I mean, you pretty much just said that, but have any of your projects influenced like where you want to hyper-focus on the type of work you want to put out there? Well, there's a project right now that our friend Adam and I wrote. It's called Disinherits, a feature about an inheritance mediator. And uh, that idea was like loosely inspired by my mom and her two sisters having a very nasty inheritance battle after my grandfather passed away. Yeah. And the more I sort of talk to people about the the idea and the thing, it's just I start realizing how many people have been affected by this kind of thing. And it's crazy. I feel like you can find one to two steps of separation. <clears throat> uh, you'll find mm -hmm. someone who's had a really nasty thing, you know, that ends up. But to me, it's it's really perplexing because I see it all the time where siblings end up like the second the parents are out of the picture the siblings really don't have a relationship and i more and more of my friends i see it all the time and just like these relationships really fractured and me and my little sister talk about that a lot how we're not going to be like that and i think talking about it like you said you talk about it you kind of be about it a bit more and so maybe it's because we're nine years apart or whatever it could be a lot of things or i i never understood no one ever taught me to be nice to my sister not even my parents <laughs> i just knew i knew like yeah she's my sister why would i not be nice to her yeah. you know i don't i don't know i know it that seems like obvious to me sort of I never understood like being an asshole to your sibling, mm -hmm. but that's the one idea that I'm kind of, we've been working with and we've been looking into documentary versions of that, but I feel like it's an interesting idea because I was trying to analyze it a little bit more of like, well, why is it that the siblings don't get along once the parents die? Why is that so common? Right. And like, my thought was that when the parents are alive, the parents, you know, the brother, sister, or the brothers, they get in a fight, the parent comes in and they solve it. Mm -hmm. They solve the issue. And so the kids never learn to like problem solve without the parents around, mm, per se. Good point. This is just my thought when thinking. And so when the parents are gone, it's just like they are kids, even though they're in their 40s and their 50s now. Like, but they never had to actually problem solve together without mom or dad mediating that that problem essentially for them yeah so that'll be an interesting story for sure yeah and it is such a shame when it comes down to material things and material wealth and how it can really just tear people apart and especially with like marriages as well people marrying into the family things like that it always makes things extra tricky but i think the theme that i see going on uh with your work is what you mentioned, you love people and the human experience and real human mm -hmm. stories. So I'm excited to see that one and see more of what you put out. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, it's, it's definitely like, I think people have shaped me. I think when you say that pivotal moment, it's like all the amazing people that I've met over the course of my life, all those moments are the, mo are the moments that together kind of build something special for me. I think just having that open nature to people is like the possibilities are kind of endless in a lot of ways. You're doing you know? it. You're, you're doing it well. <laughs> I'll try. Yeah. I try. <laughs> well, uh, thank you again so much for your time and for sharing yourself and for sharing these stories. We talked a little bit about your project earlier, but are there any projects from the past or currently that you want to plug and where can we see your work? 
Yeah, so my feature film, Failure to Protect, is on Amazon and it's on on demand. So you can rent it or buy it and like it and rate it five out of five uh, if you like. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, I'm currently producing a show for Discovery called Murder in the Heartland. Uh, It's a true crime series. And my episode actually just aired last night. They're airing every Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern and Western, Eastern and Pacific time. I don't know how that works, but they air at the same time. Huh. So that show, yeah, that's that's airing now. So the next four weeks episodes will be coming out. And then that will go on Max and Discovery Plus later. Has it been around for a while? Because I feel like I've heard of that. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. This is the sixth season of the show. I've done the last three And I'm about to do my final one for the year and then travel somewhere, which I don't know where I'm going to go yet. Ooh, any idea? So I don't know. I was thinking Panama, maybe Nicaragua. We're going to New Orleans for New Year's Eve, actually. That's going to be a lot. Was it you that said you've never been there before? Never been to New Orleans. Oh, man. Talk about culture. You're going to love it. You're going to love it. Yeah. Spicy food and jazz music and yep. you know it sounds great so yeah those are the two things i would say that are out in the world mm-hmm. right now some stuff in the past but i did a one-hour special called what happened to valentino dixon that i was really proud of and one called murders at the burger joint but the one uh the, the valentino dixon one was about a guy who was falsely in prison for murder and then got out through his artwork wow um, which was a really inspirational kind of story and uh, he was a really Doing that one was one of those ones where you're like, man, I feel lucky to tell this guy's story. That's how I felt, like kind of directing that. So that, like when you get those kind of ones, that's when you're like, this is why I do this work because of these kind of people who just are so inspiring. Um, But yeah, we'll see where the road of life takes me next. (laughs) I'm excited for it. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Thanks for having me, Laura. I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Identity Shockwave podcast, hosted by me, Lori Vaitzig. Catch us next time for a new episode with a different guest that is sure to keep the conversation interesting. A big thank you to Let Me Crazy for letting us use their music. I'll catch you later. <laughs>